Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 633 with Emil Jatney and Joe Santos. We don't sell, we educate. To add on that, it's about the long run. It's not about the, the you know, do things that will benefit, be mutual beneficial for the long run. And that has to do with educating and relationships and everything we've spoken about. Are you ready for It Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Everybody loves payday, am I right? But loving your payroll provider, that's a different story. It's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and HR support to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and who knows, you might even fall in love. To learn more, head over to gusto.com slash unstoppable. And when you run your first payroll, you'll get your first three months free. Again, that's gusto.com slash unstoppable. It doesn't get easier than cake. Cake is the point of sale built for restaurants. That's easy to set up and use with cloud-based access from any device, 24 seven customer support and a lifetime access to cake university. How could you not love cake to learn more about cake point of sale, head over to trycake.com slash unstoppable. And because you're a restaurant unstoppable listener, you will save $750 off activation. Again, that's trycake.com slash unstoppable unstoppable. When your employees are empowered to speak up internally, you can stay one step ahead of costly issues that can tarnish your brand before they become larger public problems. Ethics Suite is the first employee incident reporting platform developed to be fully customizable for every industry, including the restaurant industry. Unethical workplace behavior is a threat. It's time to protect your business with an incident reporting system. Find out why Ethics Suite is the leading anonymous reporting system for the restaurant industry at ethicsuite.com slash restaurant unstoppable with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guests Emil Jotney and Joe Santos are you two feeling unstoppable today absolutely yes today definitely <laughs> okay that's what we like to hear <laughs> so uh, in 2010 and in kinship with the craftspeople who embody the Brooklyn spirit Emil Jotney and uh, Joe Santos set out to make a high quality small batch American gin by hand on their own terms and so Brooklyn gin was born since then the company they have built around this guiding principle remains proudly independent and purposely small I cannot wait to dive into your story to find out how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or a mantra. What do you guys got for me? Cool. You want to well, go first, Emil? Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to fail. And what do you have? Uh, I will greet this day with love in my heart. I will greet this day with love in my heart. Let's start with Emil. Why did you choose that success quote? Because uh, I think that's, that's kind of in everything we've done and everything we try to do. Uh, if we want to grow, we we definitely try to instill in, in everyone in our company that if we're going to come up with some fresh ideas, some new things, and drive things forward, we cannot be afraid to fail. Uh, if we don't fail, we haven't tried hard enough. 
So we we always want to try to, you know, swing for the fences, do some cool things, and if it doesn't work, that's okay. We'll try something new. I dig it, and let's swing over to Joe. Why did you choose that success quote? Say it one more time. Yeah, so it's more of a mantra. I'll greet this day with love in my heart. Uh, It's something I start my day with every time I wake up, and for me, it's it's kind of like a guiding light for the day. Uh, Instead of trying to focus on the negative, really focus on the things that are going well. Uh, as an entrepreneur, most entrepreneurs know that you get a lot of obstacles and hurdles thrown at you, and uh, I'd rather just focus on the positive. I think it's so important to know, too, that we have the ability to choose how we want to feel. Uh, this is That's the amazing gift of, of the frontal lobe, right? To take emotion <laughs> over, over, or take control over our emotions. And when you have that, when you know that it's, it's something that you can choose every day to, to, to be filled with love, uh, you just hit those days so much differently than you would have if you let like the worries of your life, like overwhelm your, your frontal lobe and you start worrying and you're angry and like, just put those <laughs> emotions away that they're not serving anybody, uh, and just be grateful and, and have that gratitude. Right. Absolutely. Awesome way to get this thing started. So where does it make sense to start today's conversation? Uh, who wants to go first? Let's, let's maybe spend a little time on each of your stories and then we'll talk about maybe how, where you guys cross paths, uh, maybe five minutes each. So who wants to go first, Joe? Sure. So uh, where, what were you doing before Brooklyn gym? So before Brooklyn Gin, I worked for Bacardi. Okay. Uh, So I've actually been in the industry for 15 plus years. Okay. I'm a marketer by background. uh, So I worked across a few of their different brands. Um, Prior to that, if you want me to go a little further back. Sure. You know, my career hasn't been very linear. Um, I had a, I actually worked in finance for a couple years for Goldman Sachs. uh, And that was sort of post grad school, dip my toe into a different world, uh, really focus on, again, marketing and sales, but in the finance world, and then decided that my real passion was with uh, consumer products and things that are tangible, you know, versus sort of a service oriented. Why was that your passion? Uh, You know, as from a marketing aspect, I love the whole concept of where you can take a commodity, you know, something that, you know, is pretty standard, bar soap, you know, even a bottle of booze on its own right is a commodity. But being able to wrap an emotional and sort of intangible things around it, um, I felt that, you know, that's what I find most interesting about marketing and being able to do that and how you communicate that to a consumer. And there's almost always a story behind a product, right? And I think being able to bring those stories and the appeal that, that lays behind the product, it must be fun just to do that research and to know that you can bring that to the surface. I, get, I bet that's a blast. <laughs> so um, you started in finance. Uh, you moved over to Bacardi Marketing. What, what made that switch? When did you make that switch and how did you make it? Yeah, sure. So um, to even go a little bit further back, most of my career started in advertising and uh, marketing. I worked with Leo Burnett right out of college, an ad agency out in Chicago, went to their office in Venezuela. And then right there, I worked on Procter & Gamble products where the, I then got hired away by them. Okay. I went back to grad school with the idea I was going to focus on international marketing, um, you know, originally my family's from Puerto Rico, so I'm fluent in Spanish, and I always had a passion for the region. So um, I went back to grad school thinking I was going to do that, and I basically got introduced to this world of, uh, in the finance world, of sort of the marketing and sales side of, of uh, wealth management. And um, what I realized after doing it for a couple years was that, one, I just, my heart wasn't in it, and I think that's one of the things I learned uh, early on in my career is that... Heart wasn't in international marketing? No, my heart wasn't into finance. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. I learned a lot, and uh, it was definitely very interesting, but it just my, you know, waking up every day and knowing I had to go do that, it just wasn't the most motivating thing. 
And when I really thought about what I loved doing in my prior jobs, you know, it really had to do more with marketing and uh, marketing of, you know, a tangible product. Okay. So, so far the things I'm pulling from your backstory, what you bring to the table is advertisement, marketing, and finance. You're, I'm, I'm starting to see the lanes that you guys are falling into. I'm still not too sure about your st- story yet. Uh, anything worth mentioning going into more before you guys cross paths or should we direct our attention over to ML? No, I think at this stage it's probably because Bacardi is where we, that's where we cross paths. So probably be good to turn it over to ML at this point. Okay, cool. Uh, over to you. Emil, Emil, where does your story start? Where does it make sense to start your story? So my, my story starts with my grandfather, who was at, I, I grew up in Sweden, and uh, my grandfather was a factory worker who got uh, rashes on his arms, couldn't continue his job. Uh, so he didn't have a job. He had my grandmother and my mother and no way to support them. So he went to the place where people bought the stores bought flowers mm. and bought a, a bunch of red roses and uh, went to a street corner. He went to the wealthiest part of Stockholm and stood on the street corner to sell roses. Uh, sold them, uh, got enough money to buy more. Continued until he ended up with uh, two flower stores in Stockholm. Wow. My grandmother running one, my grandfather running the other. My mother took over, and now my sister back in Sweden is running uh, the one flower store, the other one we don't have anymore. So one thing I like to do, uh, I, I like to say behind every restaurant, behind every great company are great people, and these great people are created by other great people, and I'm assuming one of your these great people who have influenced you is your grandfather, maybe just from learning from the outside looking in. What's one thing you learned about, from your grandfather? How has he influenced who you are today? Man, I, I, I actually want to switch that over a little bit okay because as much as i learned from him that was a little earlier yeah but my father also started a yes. local lumber yard okay back back in town <laughs> and i think i learned I, I learned most you know he's the one i've learned most from what'd you learn uh, i've learned uh, first of all he's a very uh he's great at asking questions and has great common sense uh and can sit down and look at a large like a large problem and just ask simple questions and simplifying it to something that's like smaller and tangible and you can start kind of solving it in a corner. Mm. So, so he's great at that. But I also learned hard work and uh, the ups and downs of running your own company. I mean, Joe was talking in the beginning about, you know, starting his day on a positive note. And I think that's, that's one of the most underestimated things you need to do as an entrepreneur is to know the ups and downs and, and re- really try to focus on the ups and not get down too much by the downs. So yeah. I think I learned, I learned that from him too. Power uh, of positivity, right? Yeah, power of positivity. Mm-hmm. And, and, and really, you know, from them, I always felt that I wanted to start something on my own. I had that like in me, but as a lot of people do, you kind of, go the opposite way from your, your parents or, or your family. <laughs> so I kind of went into, you know, I went back, went, went to college and, and got like an office job. So a little bit similar to Joe until, you know, I started to figure out that, hey, you know what, after a little bit of a path, I started to figure out that what I really want to do is, is something similar to them, start something on my own. Okay. So what, what were the details of your office job? What, were, what skills were you picking up during this time? Well, back then I was working in finance, same thing. I looked around one day and said, I really like my friends. I really like the people around me, but 
I don't really have similar interests. I The tasks I do are not the tasks that I would like to do if I could choose. And I'm just in the wrong place. So uh, I kind of had to start my path back to what I was really interested in was just, was just uh, you know, making stuff, mm-hmm. creating stuff. See, see if we can do something that either would, would help people or something that will make people happy or, or anything else. But, it, you know, create something that, that didn't exist yet. Yeah, so I'm mm-hmm. I'm assuming you left finance, the desk world, working behind a desk, the jet, the desk jockey, right? Mm-hmm. And you move. Is this when you moved to uh, a, a job over at it was Bacardi? You said, or was yeah. there anything between there? So, so I was also just like Joe. I was I was at Bacardi, right? So I worked on the brand team there. It was a great great way to learn, you know, the industry. I uh, get to know a little bit more about how it works because it's kind of a complicated industry and all that. And uh, uh, great experience all in all but i i actually said on my uh my interview for the job they asked me that question like what do you think you'll do in five years and i said i i want to start my own thing <laughs> and uh i still got the job so <laughs> <laughs> well it shows that you have you know, i think when people ask that question what they're looking for is that you are intentional uh that you're you know you have a plan and that that working there is a part of the plan or whatever whatever thing you're going to learn by being there right you're going to take it more seriously uh, i think another really cool thing i love about your story before we start to like t- bring you the the story starts overlaying at this point is what we pull from your grandfather uh, or maybe it was your dad but their ability to uh, look at a big challenge right and to break it down into little pieces um there's a great book out there that came to mind when you were saying that called eat that frog by i think brian tracy is the name and that book is exactly all about that like how do you eat a big gnarly slimy frog right one bite (laughs) at a time like you don't have to eat the whole thing at once like break it up into pieces and tackle it right and that's kind of what was resonating with me during that that part of your story um so at what time did you guys both come to bacardi like when when were you hired on with bacardi what's the year for me, it was 2005. 2005? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Joe? for me, it was 2002. 2002. So about three years apart, not too far off. Um, and you were both working in, in fine, or sorry, in ads, advertisement, marketing? Branding? In marketing, okay. yeah. So were you doing the same exact job? Like, Talk, talk about like what you, like, maybe starting with Joe, because you started there first. Sure. Like, what did you start with? Yeah, so I started on a brand called Casadores. It's a tequila brand that they had purchased in 2002. So I was brought on board to help you know, bring the brand. And, well, I was already in the U.S., but to expand it. And, but it was their first time in the tequila category. So it was kind of becoming the internal expert in the category. Um, very quickly, because now they had this, this distillery and they only had one product, uh, they wanted to do some innovation work, and I had never done innovation stuff before. And um, you know, I got thrown onto a couple projects: one to develop a new tequila brand, and created this brand called Corzo along with my, you know, my boss, and um, also created new extensions to Casadores. And what that experience taught me was that man, I ended up loving the innovation side, you know, a ton, and just making something from scratch. So, uh, you know, I dove into it. And did every, you know, tried to learn every aspect of creating a product uh, within our industry, how you get a cap done, how you get a bottle done, you know, how do you distillation, how do you get a liquid done. Um, And every time I rotated onto a team, I raised my hand for the innovation project. So then I moved on to Dewar's. um, And then after that, I moved on to the Bacardi Rum team, uh, two years in their global team out of London, and then two years back in the the U.S. organization. And it was around that time uh, on my Dewar's uh, it was when Emil and I connected. Uh, we both went to the same grad school. So every time we had a job opening, I would post it on the school's website. 
and uh, Emil happened to pick up on one of the posts and reached out to me. And, uh, you know, I told him about the company and about my experience and, you know, he, uh, he jumped on it. So what, what exactly is innovation work? What is your objective when you're taking on a new product? Are you trying to like, what, what's usually the end goal in innovation work? I think more than anything else, it's probably the biggest thing is filling a gap. You know, it's looking for that gap in a, in either a category just from a functional aspect of what, you know, something tastes like. But I think there's also those types of gaps for like an emotional aspect, you know, what the brand and what you're trying to communicate, you know, to the consumer and sort of what they're going to feel and take away from that product. Um, so I, I think innovation at the, at, at a, in one aspect is about filling a gap, but the other thing is also about differentiating. You know, you just don't want to do something for the sake of doing it because everyone else is doing it. You know, how are you going to stand out in a crowd? And there's a lot of different ways to do that with a product. I'm taking notes. We're going to come back to this. I think it's a good time now to just sw- swing over to Emil. Um, so 2005, uh, you come on to Bacardi. Uh, were you, was Joe, were you Emil's boss at this time or what were you guys? No, we actually worked on completely different teams. Okay. Okay. We never overlapped. Okay. Got you. So take us through your, your journey of, of getting hired on with, uh, Bacardi. Yeah. So for me, it was a little different and I wanted to get into the, you know, the brand management side, which, you know, incorporates, you know, managing a brand, just like it sounds. And, uh, uh, you know, that the opportunity was there to join uh, the Grey Goose team, which was Grey Goose was just bought by Bacardi. is the fastest growing spirit in the U.S. and continue to be for the next, you know, five years. And uh, so I was the brand director in uh, uh, for Grey Goose Vodka in the U.S. And, and Joe was a brand director at Bacardi Rum. Okay. So um, brand management, you said... That sounds like the job is pretty much exactly what that is. We'll get in, into details. Like, what is brand management, and what things were you learning during this time? All, learning all about brand management. I mean, it's everything from, you know, marketing a brand, how the industry works. Uh, obviously, you you you're involved a little bit in the operations side and forecasting, working with distributors. Uh, you know launching launching new products in new places and and all these different things and i think one of the things that one of the reasons we wanted to leave or i wanted to leave and do a different thing was that exactly what we were doing didn't seem to make sense to us um, because it's very like exactly what what joe the the innovation kind of process that joe described was like exactly what we didn't want to do right we didn't want to take such a you know studied approach to do something we 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 wanted instead to start and you know when when you when you innovate for the large companies it's usually it usually starts on on like the the backside it starts with the end in mind so you start with okay who's the consumer what are they into what are the trends you know, what are the things we're looking for? And then you end up with what should the product be, right? Which, yeah. Okay, and, keep going. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Keep going. And we were on the <laughs> actual opposite side. We said, we want to create the thing that we love, right? And, the, and then figure out what it becomes and who likes it. Yeah. Because if we love it, if we truly create something, and that's why it took us a really, really long time to de- de- develop this and get the the right flavor that we want and the bottle that we wanted is because like, Joe and I, I, we're not naturally good salespeople. 
And if we're going to run around with a backpack and knock on doors, which is what we did for a long time, uh, we truly have to love it. It has to be something that is like, this is the one thing that I would drink every time I went to a bar if it wasn't mine. And, you know, we had fallen in love with that, with the whole gin category because we, we were going to a lot of cocktail bars in our jobs because whenever we got to a new city, oh, everybody in the company wanted to show us the great new cocktail bar, right? So you have all these great cocktail bars and we saw all these amazing cocktails doing with fresh ingredients. And this was very much in the beginning of the kind of classic cocktail movement and, yeah. the, and the craft cocktail movement. Mm-hmm. And we saw all this going on and we, we saw that the backbone of this and the cocktails that we really loved were gin cocktails, right? So, so we became fans of gin first and then we started to see the thing about how some craft spirits were starting to be made. And it was hard to do it before because of legalities of opening craft distilleries and things like that. But well, then kind of opened up, we are like, wow, these, these are products that are made with integrity. They're made kind of inefficient that a large company can't really make it that because it's very inefficient. You use you know, great ingredients and great, great process and great technique. And you start out with making something something that you really love, something you, you want to drink, and then try to create a company around that. Mm. And if it didn't work, it didn't work. But we kind of felt that if we love it, we hope that there are enough like-minded people yeah. out there that would love it too. I want to break this down a little bit. I love what you're sharing with us. And I think I don't think it's bad advice to start with the end in mind. Uh, I mean, that's one of the seven habits of highly effective people in that book. Uh, but I think what you said is so true that not everything that we learn is applicable for every situation. And when you're dealing with right. people, uh, what you said is basically you're thinking about like, what do these people, we want to appeal to these people and how can we make this thing appeal to these people? And then you just start twisting and turning and like, it's all like you're pulling the wool over. Some, it can get kind of sleazy sometimes because you're not, gen, you're not always being completely authentic to the brand, right? right. Or the product. But or authentic just, to yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so starting with the end of mind, I mean, it, all these things that we learned don't always work in every situation, right? But that doesn't mean we should throw them out the window. But I, I love how you're just proving that that statement correct. That like you should really custom. You need to learn so many. The way I think of like all these little things that we learn, like these entrepreneurial like sayings or SEO terms or whatever, is by you, you got to have like a Swiss Army knife and you get to yeah. apply the, these terms and these situations to every, to every unique opportunity or whatever. You picking up on what I'm putting down? Want to reflect on that? <laughs> <laughs> Either one of you. Yeah, yeah, and I and and I truly think that in a lot of things we do. I mean, when we sit in the the office with our team and we do things, we always say like, "What's the purpose of this? What do we want to accomplish? What what's what's the end goal?" So I think in a lot of things we do day to day, we try to start with with the end in mind, right? For how we make smaller decisions and other things like that. But I think for us, and I also think that we're working for a large company and going through that process is is the right thing to do and that's that's your job and and it makes complete sense but we thought that for us personally if we wanted to create something with that specific thing we truly needed to make it like we, we needed to grow from 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 us and out and and uh so it, it, it kind of became a different type of process and i i, I think that also shows that you know there's a lot of frameworks there's a lot of you know, ways of thinking. There are a lot of books and other things you can pick up on things. Uh, but at the end of the day, it needs to work for you. And and you have to pick the, the things that work for you 
uh, in the right moments and the right situations. Mm, I love it. Yeah. So I think this is a good time to take our first break to thank our sponsors. We'll, we'll be right back to talk about how you made Brooklyn Gin into a reality. It's the entrepreneurial myth, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's the idea that when you open your own restaurant, life is going to get easy because you get to do exactly what it is that you love, whether that's front of house or back of house. And then reality kicks in, right? You've got to do all this other stuff that comes with owning a business like taxes, HR, payroll, really boring stuff. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, HR actually easy for small business. And if you want to add on 401k or health benefits, it's a breeze. Those old school clunky payroll providers just were not built for the modern small business. Not to mention, you, you've got to compete with the big guys. But how do you compete with the big guys when you don't have big guy bucks? Well, with Gusto. That's how. Get back to doing what it is you love and let Gusto handle the rest. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you'll get your first three months free when you run your first payroll. That's Gusto.com slash Unstoppable. Again, Gusto.com slash Unstoppable. We're back. And now I want to start talking about how you actually made Brooklyn Gin into a thing, how you created this thing. So when did the conversation have or when did you two have this conversation that we should break off and do our own thing? Yeah, so do uh, you want me to start? Yeah. Or I, I can, I can probably <laughs> because I, I, I had a started with Emil. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I was in, I was in the office, uh, and, and something happened. So I, I think working in a large company, one thing that happens is you know there's a lot of people that have to approve everything that goes on and especially if you work on a brand that is very profitable and important for the company right and that can also lead to your hands being tied to do interesting stuff and and stuff that you think you know the brand or the the company should do and i i've had this thing right that i i wanted to go and do my own thing and at one point one day i just felt like this is the right moment so since Joe and I were friends in the company, I, I needed to share that with someone. I, I was just like, I had this energy within me and I walked over to Joe and I said, Joe, this is it. I'm going to go and do my own thing. <laughs> and Joe was like, I've been thinking about doing that too. Let's sit <laughs> nice. down and have a cup of coffee. Nice. What did that conversation look like? Well, you know, for me, just a animated from my side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, Timing is everything when it comes to certain things, especially ventures like this. And, uh, you know, for me, I'd just gotten back from uh, the UK and working for Bacardi out there for a couple of years. And um, I kind of hit a point in my career where I felt like I was spending more time dealing with politics and protecting my team than I was yeah. actually doing my job. Yeah. Uh, so when Emil came into my office that day, you know, um, I'd already been thinking about what I wanted to do next. And I'd actually gone down the road of, T totally random, but I, I found I came up with this idea for a, a single serve smoothie, and I woke up one day after planning, you know, working on it for a while, and realized, man, I would never get, you know, I just can't get out of bed for this. Like I would not walk away from my job to go do this. And when I started reflecting on really what I loved doing at at Bacardi or just in my career, it you know, everything came back to innovation. So when Emil came in and talked about starting his own thing, I was like, holy crap, that's exactly what I've been thinking about. Um, so there was a little bit of the conversation in the office, but then we, you know, we, we met outside of the office to, to flush this thing out. And, um, 
man, there were a lot of things that we were kind of throwing around, but like gin seemed like the natural thing because we were both really passionate about it. Um, there was this whole do it yourself movement. So I think we took a lot of, uh, insight from things that were going on like that. Um, you know, everything from farm to table restaurants to fresh ingredients in bars and, uh, people doing stuff, you know, using traditional methods. And when we started talking about it, you know, the pieces started falling into place on what felt right for us. And, uh, a lot of that had to do with, you know, doing something authentic and doing it in the gin space. Mm. So and, uh, go ahead. And no, and I, and I had also, I, I had actually looked into like starting a distillery in Brooklyn seven years before that and realized that it was because I, I, I kind of felt like, you know, this was something that should exist and it, and, and, and it didn't. And I, I loved, you know, I lived in New York city and I, I I I lo- love the neighborhood and uh, I I kind of love the idea of hey you know there there's this cool craft breweries why aren't there any cool craft distilleries <laughs> so it's just like it's something I wrote down on paper and then I looked into it a little bit and realized that back then the laws kind of made it that way. really hard to do yeah. and when that opened up a little bit all of a sudden th- there was this you know opportunity to go ahead and do it. Is it still as hard today as it was then, or have the, the, the rules been loosened? No, up? no, no, it's much easier. Yeah. What was what was hard then about the what was which rule made it difficult specifically? Well, the, or there multiple? The, yeah, the biggest thing was the distilling license. Okay. You know, okay. back then uh, it was really geared more towards big manufacturers. So, license in the state of New York was something like I don't know thirty thousand dollars, and it, you know uh, the the licensing process took forever and uh, was really geared more towards big manufacturing. What really happened was that um, the influence, I think, from the craft brewing industry kind of trickled over to the craft distilling side. And it was really, I think, driven, if I remember correctly, by Washington and Oregon were sort of the first states to offer craft distilling licenses. And what it did is just made it easier to get in. You know, the license was, you know, fairly inexpensive. You know, New York followed very quickly. And the New York license, I think, is like, I don't know, 150 bucks or 750 something like that. Um, and then it, there's all these benefits to it. You can self-distribute. Uh, you can sell direct to consumer from your distillery, you know, uh, things that were outside of what we call the three tier system. Yeah. yeah. And eliminating a lot of that overhead. So that's what made it, you know, when we started, so this conversation that we're talking about was in 2008, you know, we got started in 2010 is actually when we launched Brooklyn gin and maybe around that time there was 150 distilleries in the country. And now there's close to 2000. Wow. So just about every state now offers a craft I feel like we need to tap the brakes real quick because my memory isn't that great, but I had this conversation with Lauren, and I think that she she put somebody's name on my radar who was really a spearhead uh, for this whole movement, the craft distillery movement, who really went and lobbied for the small. Is there, there a name coming to mind, an individual specifically? Oh, that, yeah. Um, I don't know if he's uh, with Ralph Lorenzo. At least for the state of New York. Ralph Lorenzo was the guy who really got. I just uh, want to give him a nod. For, yeah, I mean, absolutely. We need more, you know, freedom fighters, right? People that are willing to go out there and fight for the rest of uh, these craftsmen. It's hard to, yeah. to start uh, a business today. A lot of l- l- regulations and things were made in, in the past when we had a different frame of mind. Uh, and we need to start thinking small again. And yeah. we need to really tip our hat to these people who are going out there and, and fighting on behalf of all of us. So just want to say that. Um, where were you, where was your train of thought before I cut you short? Do you remember? Oh, um, 
it was yeah just about how you know suddenly it became a lot easier to get into the industry um you know the time again going back to timing like the stars lining up for us when we started talking about our idea which really started simply as locally produced high quality spirits you know it then kind of morphed into you know seeing everything that was going on in the restaurant world the bar world the fresh ingredients you know we thought about how can we how can we do how can we transition that into our product and you know will fresh ingredients make a difference and we started playing around with recipes that use fresh ingredients in particular fresh citrus and that was sort of the the birth of like you know our basic idea for the gin itself um and then it kind of got into and you can talk to this probably emma about like to be in a fresh take um but also helping people drink better yeah so i mean we we I mean, there, there there are a couple of things to this, and that was the the first I wanted to add what, to what what Joe was saying is that uh, again we we didn't take that like the textbook approach what we've learned before to develop the product. We actually took over a year to develop our recipe, mm-hmm. and we developed over fifty different recipes. We developed we basically went through. We we started at a point where we thought, you know, here 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 is what a what a great gin is for us. And then we started to play with it in different directions. We, we, we made it on a little lab still just to get the flavor combinations right. And then we lived with them for a couple of weeks. And then we took the one that we really liked and we developed a couple of versions of that. And we kept going like that. And throughout that, we had different ideas. Ideas that we got from friends that are chefs ideas that we got from uh, just going out and having a cocktail and saying like everybody's using fresh juices in these cocktails why don't we use fresh citrus peels in our gin do we think that'll make a difference let's try it holy shit it tastes amazing (laughs) so so you know who would have thought right fresh ingredients so so it, it wasn't really like you know here here is exactly what we want to have it it was it was a journey to get to what our favorite gin was. Mm-hmm. We kind of had an idea where we wanted to go, but it took us a while, and we let it took that time because we needed it to be like the gin that we want to drink. Yeah, and and we needed it to be. We were okay with taking that extra time to to get to a place that we could feel really proud of and really feel like we can it represented what we wanted to do, um, and then. Because of that, we started to think about okay, we're using we're using fresh ingredients. We we're trying to this is kind of like a, a fresh take on 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 gin. It's it's a little bit different than the the London Dry gins that are wonderful. There's so many wonderful like London Dries. You got beef eater. You got but this is a different type of gin, and it's it's new. It's fresh. It's you know we're we're here we're here in Brooklyn, New York, and. So we kind of said that what we want to try to do around it going forward in in how how we promote our, our gin is we want to do we want to focus on trying to do some experience and have some ideas that that are new and are different and that's when the whole like don't be afraid to fail mm. will come in mm-hmm. because we've done some stuff that that people are kind of like shaking their heads and saying. Yeah, that's probably not going to work. And we'll say, hey, 
awesome. Then it's an, an, a new thing we can do. Let's yeah. let's try it out. Let's jump on it. Just because it's it, so. not like everything else that has usually worked doesn't mean it's not going to work. Yeah. Right. Because now you're creating something you new. You have a unique selling proposition, something that you can take. If it's not like what everyone else is, what everyone else is expecting, then that's a, that could be an opportunity, right? Absolutely. Like earlier. So a couple of things are jabbing at me. Uh, some questions I've been waiting. Who's the distiller? Like who? Like who? Who's like the really leading the the, the, the spear? Who's is that you? Well, yeah. So I'm more the production guy. Okay. <laughs> did you guys have to hire like a, a master distiller or anything? Yeah. Or did, okay. So we actually uh, partnered up with the guys at Warwick Valley Winery and Distillery. So when we first got started, and this goes back to sort of how, you know, how did this come to be? And it, we always wanted to build our own distillery. Uh, but, you know, going back to when we started, it was 2008. You know, the market crapped out. It was really difficult to to raise money. Um, and everyone kind of had the same feedback to us. It's like, Hey, I love the idea, love the concept. You know, at that point we had little samples of our gin and Hey, I love the gin. Come back to us when you have a product in hand. And, and it's a little hard to sell. Hey, this is the gin we love. We think other people love it too. (laughs) People are like, I I don't know who you are. I don't really want to give you any money to, to, to run, to build this distillery because, I, I I don't know if that's a solid you know business concept. Yep. Uh, and and uh, you know J- Joe and I didn't have the money laying around in the drawer to yeah. start it up. So we had to kind of be be creative and find a way. Yeah. So we bootstrapped it and we basically put together enough money to make about five hundred bottles. Um, How much money did you need to make five hundred bottles? Wow. Uh, if I break it down, let's see. So to make the actual gin itself, you know, packaging everything is about probably I'd say like around five to ten grand. Okay. But it's the developmental costs is really where it what kills you. So, you know, one thing that we did in parallel to making the gin itself was actually the packaging. Okay. You know, and it, you know, you listeners out there won't be able to see it, but check it out on our website. It's a stunning package, and that's something else that we took a lot of time developing because we wanted to do something different. And this is another one of those situations where people thought we were crazy to spend developing money. Developing the brand first and then developing the product. Right. Yeah. And, uh, like, why not just go with a stock bottle that you can buy really inexpensively? And we felt that, you know, we put so much care into the gin itself, we wanted to put just as much care into the packaging. And um, anyway, so we went down the road of getting custom molds built. Um, that's, like, ten grand right there. Uh, and that's on the inexpensive side, you know, uh, mold sets can cost a, a North is $30,000. So, you know, I think in the beginning, if we were to put it all together, it was probably about 80 grand that we put in over a period of two years to get this thing up and running. Um, that's a huge investment for something you, you're not sure is going to work. Right? right. Yeah. But it goes back to what Emil said. It's like, we did it because it, it was our passion. You know, it came out of the, it came out of something that we both felt like we loved drinking but we love we would love going out and sharing with everybody else beautiful so but we truly believed that it was going to work yeah. like we we never had like oh consumer I, research i don't think we have any <laughs> any any doubt because we knew that people people like to drink cocktails gin cocktails are dominating classic cocktails is a backbone of it and if we can create a, a great gin that is a little different than other gins there's no reason for it not to work that was a little naive of us, perhaps, back then, <laughs> because now I can think about a million reasons right. yeah. why it wouldn't work. <laughs> but uh, and, and also, I mean, I, I think, and maybe uh, Joe, or, or I, I, I can talk to that too. When, when we set out 
we didn't know how to distill. Yeah. Right? So, so, so that was bef- before even the Warwick thing. So we had a person that, that was a friend of ours that both of us had worked with on, on products over at Bacardi who retired. But he had basically, you know, he has patents in three Spears categories. He started distilling in Kentucky and had how many years of distilling experience? Oh, easily. He was like 30, 40 years in. So, so this was, yeah, this is going to be my next question. Is yeah, like, he's how, one of how the, do you how do you go about doing this and executing when you don't have the the hard initial skill you need to to actually make the product? Yeah, you went out to your network. Yeah, and, exactly. No, so so yeah, that that that's that's the whole thing, and and that's the whole thing with you. You need to explore. You need to learn. You need to solve problems. You need to move forward. We kind of knew where we wanted to go, so we kind of had an end in mind, which was the product we loved. So it, we didn't have a customer end in mind and things like that, mm-hmm. but we had an end in mind. We want to create the gin that we love. Mm-hmm. So we spoke to we spoke to to Jim and and basically said, "Hey Jim, we don't know how to distill. We we don't know how to do this. You're an expert. Uh, we'll we'll give you a small chunk of our company if you teach us how to distill and 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 help us do this. And and that was also part of that process, the the one year process of of developing. Uh, the spirit was to work with with Jim, not not only in in you know developing the the wonderful gin that we have and and getting to the point we wanted to get, but also to teach us how to do it. Okay, so what's that process of going out learning how to do it, and then how do you like cement the recipe and cement the process once? Because he's not still with you every day, right? You he had to bring you to a point where you could keep it consistent, and you well to to find the actual product and what it would be and then to keep it consistent. What did that yeah. process look like? So, uh, you know, unfortunately, Jim passed away. His oh. name's Jim Goodwin. Um, great guy who, you know, took us basically to the finish line and he took us through that process you're talking about, which was, you know, really starting with a very, you know, again, like to Elmo's point, there was a lot of different sort of paths that we thought about. And when we described those to Jim, Jim translated them into, you know, how to go about distilling and getting those taste profiles that we were thinking about. Um, so to kind of take you through the short version of it, we did distillations of individual botanicals and Emma had mentioned it was like on a, a pilot still, which basically looked like a fancy chemistry set. And we did individual uh, distillations of each one. And then we did blending exercises to see how things would fit together. Um, and, you know, we already kind of had a working idea of, you know, fresh citrus and, you know, some other ingredients that we thought about combining. And we ended up with 50 different versions that uh, eventually we kept whittling down. Up and it wasn't through. went up so high in the process of trying to find the perfect gin. All yeah. the tasting you were doing. Sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. it, all in, you know, all in the love of research. And um, it, it was really funny, though, because because we, we would be we, we would have like so. So, so okay, so over a weekend we will make uh, a few bottles. Maybe it was like four different bottles. We had had the small little bottles, and we were like, we're gonna live with it because what you taste the first time you drink might not be like the thing you love th- the fifth time you drink mm-hmm. it, right? So we would call each other in the evening and be like, "Hey, Joe, I'm I'm really liking number four now. I'm I'm getting down with number four. <laughs> and, and Joe would be like, "Yeah, but number three, what about yeah? So what are we gonna do with them?" And then we went back with with Jim and said, "Okay, here's what we're digging. Here here's you know how how can we take it a little bit more here or there?" And mm-hmm. so I love it. Do we yeah. derail your train of thought? Oh no! So basically, um, you know, Jim took us down his path 
of really helping us translate a lot of the things we were thinking about. And we weren't doing like official consumer research and doing focus groups. We literally were tasting it ourselves. Uh, again, it all came back to being something that we needed to love it. But then we shared it with people that we trusted, you know, people in the industry, people outside of the industry, bartenders, consumers, and just, and it's just friends of ours. You know, I would take, you know, I took it to a brunch once, you know, once we got down to like three different ones and I had everyone taste all three and got their feedback and, you know, and it was really cool. It was a very organic process. Mm. It wasn't like a, you know, systematic the way a big company would do it. Um, and then once we finally got to the winner, you know, then it was about finding a place to, to make it. Yeah. You know? and that's where the Warwick Valley winery and distillery, distillery comes into place. Take it, us through that whole process. Yeah. And even that wasn't linear. You know, we, um, again, originally we always wanted to have our own distillery, but when we realized we couldn't, we just found a way to bootstrap it and make it happen. And, what was the biggest reason why you couldn't? Uh, I'm sorry, the reason we couldn't? The reason you couldn't. Oh, we didn't have the money. I was, I was wondering <laughs> if there's anything else that might have been. Uh, no, like that was the biggest obstacle for yeah. us at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, the way we got introduced to the Warwick guys, we actually had uh, first spoken to Ralph Lorenzo. Uh, he has a distillery called Tuttletown. Uh, they make Hudson whiskey. So I reached out to Ralph. He was sort of the grandfather of the industry in the state. And, you know, he was like, well, maybe we can do it here. Um, unfortunately, they were like really full of capacity. They couldn't do it. Right around that time, we got introdu- introduced to the guys at New York Distilling Company. And we were both ideas on paper. And they were setting up a distillery in Williamsburg. So when we met and we made realized that we're both doing gin, both doing something craft, we realized that our taste profiles were different, our pricing was different, our bottles looked different. Why not make it at their place? So we decided to do that. And then when we were ready to go, they got delayed about two years mm. because of a lot of different reasons. And then they introduced us to the Warwick guys because that's where they were doing sort of their test work. And we met with uh, Jason Grisanti and Jeremy Kidda, uh, who were the the guys who run the operation there and own the operation. And they had, uh, they're primarily, they had Apple Orchard, their primary business was hard cider called Docs, but they had a still to make brandy from their apples and okay. some other some other fruits. So they had a lot of downtime because it wasn't really their main business. So we would rent the equipment for the day. And this is where, you know, Jim unfortunately passed away when we were coming to do the first distillations and his old mentor and business partner, a guy named Vince Ficka, uh, you know, kind of took the, grabbed the baton at that point. So he went with us to the distillery. So between Jason, who's the master distiller at Warwick and Vince and ourselves, you know, we started doing our test batches and tweaking here and there based on what was coming off the still. Um, and then that was like a whole nother round of, you know, variations of the recipe and, you know, tasting things and living with it and getting feedback. Um, and then finally getting down to the recipe that we have today. And that's sort of how we got started, you know, now as we've grown. So in the beginning I was going up there all the time and working with the staff up there and the team to do the distillations and bottling. Uh, but as we grew, you know, they basically, we relied on them to do that work for us. Uh, so up until now, now I should say, you know, that we're nine years in, um, they continue to be our partner until we build our distillery, uh, that we're working on right now. 
I love this story. I just want to highlight a few things that really are standing out to me. And again, we started this conversation with the power of the frontal lobe, right? Of just having control over the emotion and staying positive and grateful. And again, with just creativity, right? Yeah. Um, when you're starting a new business, you're going to hit so many roadblocks and you're going to have to answer so many questions and figure out so many things. And we have such an incredible, incredible power in our, the front of our heads, that frontal lobe to, to figure out how to do it. Right. And just to ask ourselves, how can we pull this off? Right. Go to your network, right? Find out who, you know, who can be invested in, or committed to whatever the vision is and just have that persistence, right? Keep on showing up and don't lose hope because you guys have tons of roadblocks, but you yeah. just kept on asking yourself, well, how can we do this? Right. And that's such a powerful question to ask yourself. How can we do this? Cause it kicks that frontal lobe into mm -hmm. hyper gear and then solutions just start popping into your head. It won't happen overnight, but as soon as you lose hope, as soon as you say that we can't do this, your mind will shut down. Exactly. You guys want to reflect on that? Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting because the roadblocks I mean, it, it will take us like 20 hours to sit here and talk about all <laughs> yeah. the robots because yeah. there's so many. So yeah. when we tell it like this, it sounds very simple and very linear and very, I mean, there is little things like, okay, so Joe calls me, we're making, making a batch and it clouds up and it looks like milk. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's like the first final batch on the big still. Uh, or big still, it's a small still, but it's not a chemistry lab and like chemistry <laughs> kit anymore. So in in the copper still, and it clouds up like milk. And we're like, we quit our day jobs. We we have designed a bottle. We put all this into it, and we have a gin that clouds up like milk. And we quickly figure out after talking to a few friends, and it's because we use fresh citrus. So when it hits water, the oils you know stiffens up and yeah. it clouds up like an absinthe or or, yeah. or whatever else. So then it was, but. There were a couple of a uh, couple of hours there when we were like, "What do we do? We quit our day, day jobs. We left well, think, uh, for something that's not going to work." I think it's important too to, to highlight the power of partnerships, especially early on when you're going through that that creative uh, phase, whether it's create creativity around how we're going to pull this off or creativity and how we're going to present this. But the power of two minds is so much more powerful than the power of one mind, especially when you're brainstorming Yeah, because you can think out loud and bounce ideas off of each other and you can compound your ideas. And the, you, I mean, the, the power of partnerships, I think in my personal opinion are underestimated. A lot of people say, yeah. stay and away from partnerships, but I am the complete opposite. Yeah. yeah and, and probably just, even more to just keep, um, keep the spirit up. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Because if Joe's down, you, pick, you yeah. know, I can pick it up and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I think that, again, starting something, what what people underestimate is is the emotional roller coaster it is. And, and to have people around you, not mm -hmm. only friends, family, people in the company, that can kind of, you know, help you go through that emotional roller coaster mm -hmm. is, is probably the thing that when we started, we didn't really, like, I've seen my parents have their own companies so i have a little bit of an idea but now i appreciate much more what they did mm. and how they didn't show uh what was going on to me so much to try to shield me as as, as the little kid right but it it's um ha having the support system around you and and inside the company is is incredibly important mm. to to have the stamina and the just like the the outlook to push through all the obstacles that I, I mean, if you're one in a million and don't hit any obstacles, I mean, yeah, but mo most of us are going to hit a lot of obstacles through yeah. the path. So, yeah. And sorry, just to add go, one yeah, quick please. thing on the power of partnerships, besides the two of us being partners, there's also sort of that extended team that we surrounded ourselves with to make this happen. And 
I think one of the things we knew is like we, we there was a lot of things we knew that we didn't know, and we try to fill those gaps with the the network of people that we that we know. So everything, everyone from Jim Goodwin who helped us on the recipe side to uh, our friend that helped us design the bottle, Ron Juan from Spring Design Partners, um, to you know, there's a number of people that we leaned on, and I think that. When you talked about creative problem solving, you know, as much as we did it with ourselves, we relied on our extended team as well to mm. really help us guide, you know, to get more ideas, to guide us, you know, to, t- you know, tweak things when we needed to or steer us in a different direction. Um, but ultimately, it came back to the two of us really saying, okay, this is the path. This is what feels right. You know, trust our gut. And this is what we we're passionate about. Yeah. So. Uh, thank you for adding that on. And uh, one thing I want to talk about in the, the time that we have left, I, and just this is my gut feeling, is with both of your experience in advertisement and marketing uh, with with big brands, I, I feel like we can learn a lot from you under that topic of marketing and branding and how you guys decided and why. You, the, take us through the process, really, was what I'm getting at of, of how you marketed and branded your product, Brooklyn Gin, and like sure. why you chose that path, and what you know to be true about marketing, and the in, in the approach that you both took. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think to some extent we're kind of anti-marketing it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because uh, so- sometimes, you know, marketing and advertising can feel very, very slick uh, and 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 not authentic, and you can't you can't like fake that part. So. We kind of wanted to. I mean, as, as as a lot of people have probably seen, we've done very little marketing for for Brooklyn Gin in general. We've kind of relied on telling the story yes. about the gin and tasting people on the gin. So I mm-hmm. want to like kind of tease a little bit, and this is what I see in what you're doing. And uh, there's this movement right now of people uh, seeing through the bullshit. Uh, the general right. public is seeing through the bullshit. They're sick and tired of big corporations pulling the veil over their eyes, you know, like the bait and switch or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, you're seeing that the the brands that are really succeeding right now are the brands that have that story. But they're not the stories that are spun to make it seem interesting. It's the right. real stories of you know that are tied to that product. Yeah. Um, and the reason why I'm bringing this to the surface is if you're listening to this and you're looking to open a restaurant, like, do you have an incredible story? Are you doing something truly outstanding? Uh, and maybe if you're not, then try to do something truly outstanding mm-hmm. uh, and try to, you know, step up the game. And if, if you have opened a restaurant and you do have an incredible story and you went through trial and tribulation, like share that story, find out how to make that, that amazing story, part of who you are and what you stand for and tied into your brand. Um, and, and, and I'm hoping you guys also, can share us how to do that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also more like you, you're creating the story every day. Like yeah. in, in, in our mind, we always said that we're creating the story every day by our actions and what we do and, and not necessarily by what we put on paper mm-hmm. or on our website Live or the in marketing re- materials. Yeah. And that comes down to uh, who is our team? Who are the people that work for us? They're part of our story now. And we need to have wonderful people that can be, you know, work together and and really love the love Brooklyn Gin and, and and spread the love. Right? And I think if you if you try to tell the story of authenticity or or you know, if if it becomes like, oh, what is the story, it's much people can see through that too. So I think we're trying to focus on explaining what our values are and what our products are through uh, through actions and yep. the actual things we do 
and the people we hire and the company we keep. Mm-hmm. And the company we keep expand, expands out in the community here in Brooklyn with people that we partner with for if it's events or if it's, uh, you know, experiences that we put together or, or, or just little, little things around, you know, running the business. Yeah. So and just to, sorry, just to add ahead. to that really quickly is that, um, you know, you asked about sort of our approach to marketing. And, and I think when people, when we meet a lot of people and start telling them our story and, you know, we, you think as a brand, you're going to focus on, oh, this is how you make gin and this is what makes our gin different. Yeah, that's important in the conversation. But what we find is a lot of people want to hear more about how we, you know, how we made it happen, right? So sort of the point why we're here today. And I think the humble beginnings that we had um, played a lot into what the brand's kind of like transitioned into. Um, you know, everything from, you know, cutting the peels by ourselves and cracking juniper by hand, um, using my dad's pickup truck and Emil and I would run around the city doing deliveries. Um, you know, being that close to the action and, you know, the other thing we did a lot was tastings in liquor stores. You're getting firsthand feedback from people. So, you know, it, even though we took a very non-traditional route, it's great to see people's reaction to what you've put out there um, as a brand and sort of the emotional thing that you're you're hoping to get back from people. Um, and I think that's part of what's helped us in our marketing, you know, is being close to that, you know, being on the front lines. And I, I can't stress that enough is how important in the beginning uh, you need to be on the front lines. You know, there's brands that we see out there that come in with big budgets and the, the founders just kind of sit back, build a big team and put the team out there. Mm-hmm. And I think for us having those humble beginnings, I think has helped us tremendously. Yeah. Can either of you speak to with your, your knowledge in branding and marketing, why story in particular is so powerful and why it's so sticky, why our brains are hardwired to be able to, you know, grab onto that story and remember it. Do you, do you want, are either of you able to speak to that? Yeah. Probably have a good yeah, of both of us. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, 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 I mean, I think the way, you know, I, mean, I think it's more and more important. And if you look at what 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 people see and what people want and what we want at, at least is is stuff that has says that feels genuine, authentic, and 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 has a story around it. And when you hear that, you can really relate to more than just. Uh, you know what it tastes like or what it looks like. Yeah, I think right. maybe maybe you can compound off of what I'm going to share with you. But what I'm getting at, and I'm curious if you know anything about this, is is the evolution of the human mind and how we are hardwired to learn through stories. Like our right. like before we were you know writing things down and tracking everything. Like we pass knowledge on through yep. storytelling through. And if you can find a way to package your brand into a story, it's going to stick because that's how the the human mind is hardwired to operate. Absolutely. And a story it, can be retold. And we, yeah. we also know that, you know, if you have a friend telling you a story about something that's way more powerful than seeing something in the glitzy ad, right? That is someone speaks at you in some, in, instead of someone sharing something with you. And, you know, stories can be retold mm-hmm. and they, they can spread. And if it's interesting enough, or, or if it's, you know, to person to retell it to someone else, you know, it, it can spread pretty quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, one thing that we talk about is that we don't sell, we educate, mm. you know, and that's something we, we try to pass along to the folks that work for us and, uh, or we should say work with us. And, um, you know, I think that's part of that educating is the storytelling. Mm-hmm. And a lot of brands have stories out there, 
big corporate brands have stories, but to what you mentioned earlier, people sniff out the BS. Because an ad agency wrote that story. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's not authentic. Mm-hmm. And I think when you from talking to people when they start hearing our story. It's really interesting how they love, okay, the fresh citrus and all that, but they also love the anecdotes that mm-hmm. we bring up of like, just like our humble beginnings or, you know, why this is a passion project. And that part of the story seems to really resonate with a lot of yeah. people. So there's one thing I want to make sure we save time for. We're getting close to the end of this free flowing portion um, is the power of staying intentionally small. So you guys are doing great. People are loving the gin. You could be scaling. You could be doing mass production, but you're intentionally small. Why is being intentionally small powerful? For a little more perspective while you're thinking about that, 300 bottles per batch is what you guys do and it takes three days to do yep. a batch yeah so let's give you an, an, an example of what i'm talking about and why, why is that so powerful of choosing to do it the slow hard way why is that powerful i i think part of it is a little selfish it's the way we want to do it right in in terms of because when 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 we started out and and it's going to be a little larger soon because we're sitting here in the building where we're yeah. in Gowanus where we're building a new distillery. So the batches are going to be larger, but it's still going to be the same copper pot still. still going to be in small batches. They will just be a little larger, right? So, But it's still going to be the same process. And that's what we always said. We, we know that our process is slightly inefficient uh, in the way that we do things, but we think that by not cutting corners and by doing that that way, that's also the strength of not only the flavor of a gin and what it tastes like, but of, of our story as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think we, we have ways to, to scale this. You know, we, 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 can, we can become bigger. We want to spread it because, hey, we, we think this is a great gin, and if more people drink it, we think they'll drink better. Mm-hmm. So, so we, we want to scale it and we, we want to spread it. But... We will never do it by uh, focusing on operational efficiency or uh, compromising anything in in our process of, of making the gin because the, our story is one of inefficiency, right? And, and it is one of using great ingredients and a great process that takes a little bit more time, costs a little bit more money, and and it's a little bit more burdensome, but create something that we love and something that is a better product yeah. in, in our mind. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you want to add on to that? Yeah, and I think uh, the other part about being small is, you know, we came from the corporate world, and there's a reason we left it. Why is that? Well, part of it is the politics and bureaucracy of working in a big organization. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been fortunate to work in very different uh, corporate cultures, and, you know, we talked, you mentioned mentors earlier on, and uh, there are a couple of folks that when I first started at Bacardi, you know, really showed me that uh, an environment based on trust and how powerful that is. And I think that's something that you can accomplish with a smaller organization. You know, we always joke about if we have to hire a, you know, a guy, a salesperson for North Dakota, we're probably getting too big. Um, but, you know, we, we, I think that's part of us in t- staying intentionally small is creating that sort of atmosphere where, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit doesn't doesn't die down. It, you know, it gets it can get squashed very easily if you don't 
really try to focus on. And I think part of being small helps us maintain that culture. Yeah. And I think the, the, add a third variable onto that is the, the power of relationships, right? Yeah. And, um, big business, big corporation isn't built in mind with, uh, the, the variable of the human factor, right? And right. if you look again, back to, uh, the human mind and evolution, we are only able to really handle about 50 solid relationships and right. in big, big companies. You start diluting the relationship with every new person that you have to manage every new relationship you have to manage you're diluting all the other relationships and it be- just becomes going through motions right? right and you lose that soul yeah. and there's a great book out there called small giants i don't know if you guys are familiar with it it's right oh, up your alley bo burlingham past guest on the show and that that talks about the power of staying small and is greatness is you know is, is something great when it grows to a massive scale or is it something great when it chooses to stay great because it's small because there's all these values about relationships and quality and all these things that come that become marketable right right and it's good for the brand do you want to reflect on that statement you don't have to I, yeah <laughs> I, no but our our industry is one of relationships and and the mm-hmm. team i mean right now we sit with the team uh we sit together at this table right here uh, around it uh, every Monday, and first we take a few minutes to talk about what we did over the weekend. You know, so we 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 know each other pretty well on on, on the team, and then we start to talk about you know what we did last week for for work purposes, what we're trying to do now. So everybody knows what everybody else is doing, and everybody can chip in and help and work together and 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 collaborate on things because we have really tight relationships between everyone who works for the company. I love it. And and, and we can continue to have that and until because I think that that 50 person threshold that you're talking about that's probably when we hire a person in Boise. So that's <laughs> when you know. I love it. Anything and, you want to add Joe? Yeah, and just one thing really really uh touching base on relationships and that you know, we have our immediate team, but something that seems to be very common in the food and beverage industry in particular is that relationships are so important. Uh, you know, in our line of work, you know, where we rely a lot on people on the front line to be able to talk about it. So, you know, a bartender, uh, a wait, someone in the part of the wait staff, uh, you know, a sales clerk at a liquor store, you know, that's part of the, our, our extended relationships. So our customers are really important. You know, our distributor partners are really important, and obviously our consumers are really important. And I think when you touched on relationships, you know, that's something that we take very seriously that, hey, we're not out just trying to make a dollar off you. You know, we're trying to build something that's more meaningful, uh, not only from a product standpoint, but the way we work as a company. So, you know, when we work with our distributor partners, we don't want to be just another liquor company. We want to be a true business partner. When we work with our bars and restaurants and liquor stores, you know, it's not about uh, hawking a product. It's really about how can we help you, you know, make your business better. I love it. Awesome. And, uh, and to, add, to add to that, they will also become the people that tell our story. Yes. Right. right. I love it. Um, so... Before we go to the speed round, anything that you were hoping we would discuss that we did not get to today, any way we can add more value to the listeners at home, any more knowledge you can share with us? Hmm. I, I guess I can't harp enough on the, the whole importance of being passionate about what you do. Um, I think you know a lot of people that we've spoken to over the years, have, especially because we got started early on in the industry, a lot of people have come to us to hear our story and how we got started. And when you start asking them, well, why are you doing this? And, you know, what's what's your story? And, you know, a lot of people seem to be doing it for the wrong reasons. 
and I kind of cut them off and say, look, if you don't love what you're doing or you don't love your product or you don't love, you know, the people you're working with, you know, don't do it. Mm. Um, passion means so much when you're an entrepreneur because it's going to help you get through those obstacles and hurdles we talked about. How do you know when you're passionate? Man, I, for me, it's a gut thing. You know, when Emily and I talked about our initial, like, hey, let's do something together, when we came up, it, it, it felt right just from the beginning. But I think for me where it really clicked is when we actually had something physical in front of us, like an actual, you know, gin to taste. You know, when we first saw our bottle, it was those moments that I'm like, yeah, this is, I'm, I'm on the right, I'm doing what I love. You know, I'm on the right path. And it's all gut-based. Awesome. And I, I think for me, it's like the the first part of that was, yeah, we made our first bottle. That was amazing. We saw it in a bar. We had a cocktail made with it. Amazing. Mm. But my, my moment that was like my goosebump moment was when <laughs> I was standing at a, I was standing at Baltasar in, uh, in, in New York. I was in the bar and this guy is pushing me over a little bit to get to the bartender and orders a Brooklyn gin martini. And I ran straight out of the bar, called Joe, and I said, Joe, someone just order a gin in a bar. And we were like, awesome. oh, my God. But, but, but the passion part is I, I remember five years into it, we were going through some obstacles. There was, you know, it's, it's just like a tough ride some, sometimes. I, I walked my kids to school. I got a cup of coffee, I sat down on my stoop, and I looked around, and I was just like, man, I love doing this. That's awesome. I, I really, really love doing this, like every part of it. I, I love the hard parts. I love the easy parts. I'm so happy. I'm so lucky that I'm doing this. And, you know, I think part of that was that we were very, very selective in what we cho- like what we decided to do and something that we were really passionate about because we have friends that have started things that don't feel that and three years into it five years into it it's a grind and it's it's gonna hit you at some point if 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 it's not your thing i love it so this is the last question i'm gonna ask before we go to the speed round and it's a question i've been trying to ask all my guests and uh, the mission statement here is to inspire empower and transform the industry and I want to make an example of my guests and how they've transformed over the, the years they've been doing what they, they're, they're doing. So how have you transformed since, say, 2008 when you got together to make this dream into a reality? Who are you now versus the men you were then? Wow. I mean, I the number of things I can probably reflect on are many. But, um, you know, I've always been very mindful of trying to kind of focus on the building blocks of staying, uh, staying, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of staying in the zone. And that's to me is like taking care of your mind, body, and soul. Um, and I think when I look back at sort of where I was back in 2008, you know, I just was coming out of this court, corporate lifestyle. Um, I was very comfortable where I was, you know, living in a, nice place along the water and then suddenly kind of coming to the getting my head around the fact that man I got to go back and probably live with my parents sleep on couches (laughs) and borrow my dad's truck to actually do my job and um, you know when I think back to that to that transition of getting my head around that it wasn't like a burden you know and uh, I think it comes back to that passion part and I look at where I am today I think the thing, the areas I've really grown, um, have really been about sort of the, the, the mental part of, or the soul part that, that saying you can live with any, uh, how, if you have the right, why, yeah. right? 
Exactly. Uh, do you want to add anything to that, Emil? No, and I, I, I think that's the part, right? I think in, in, in the beginning, uh, every little thing had a big like impact on me. I thought that every little thing that we did, every little part was extremely important. And I think now I'm more grounded and big picture, mm-hmm. and I can see that, hey, this is a problem, but you know what? We've sold like 500 of them. We can do it. <laughs> yeah. I got to finish it. my cup of coffee. And then we're going to A little more confident, down. right? Then we're going <laughs> to sit down and you know what? We'll figure it out. Awesome. Uh, and, and I think it's that uh, more grounded and more confident cool, in our calm, ability to yeah. move forward. I dig it. Awesome stuff. We're going to take a, one more quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back cake makes it easy thousands of restaurant operators are using cake pos and loving it with its easy simple to use and intuitive interface how could you not cake users are achieving peak satisfaction with 24 7 customer support not to mention a lifetime access to cake university no wonder customer satisfaction scores are so high everything about cake is simple including its pos integration with cake guest manager in google reservations which basically allows your guests to book reservations or get on wait lists straight from google search or google maps that's pretty rad this simple integration alone has increased guest count by as much as 25 percent to learn more about how cake makes it easy head over to trycake.com slash unstoppable and because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners you can save 750 dollars off activation for cake point of sale but you have to use my links again that's trycake.com slash unstoppable Did you know the National Restaurant Association states that losses due to fraud at a restaurant run around 4% of sales? That's like an annual marketing budget. Workplace harassment, discrimination, misconduct, theft, and fraud can all have devastating impact on a restaurant's profitability, public image, and result in legal liability. But how do you respond to and mitigate risk if an incident goes unreported internally before it becomes public? Ethics Suite provides a line of communication between you and your staff, allowing you to stay informed and respond to incidents rapidly and privately. With Ethics Suite, your employees can easily report suspicious activity or potentially unethical behavior from any device anywhere and employees can also submit reports completely anonymously if they so choose safeguarding your business starts by listening to your employees it's that simple find out why ethics suite is the leading anonymous reporting system for any restaurant in the industry head over to ethicsuite.com slash restaurant unstoppable we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to to your success and we'll go first Uh uh-huh uh just uh push pushing the ball forward and you know calmly pushing the ball forward joe what do you got kind of related to that just my ability to stay even keeled you know through the day through the week but you know handling the obstacles you know and trying to stay positive what are your biggest weaknesses? Go for it. <laughs> Carbs. No. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you there. You know, uh, definitely, you know, my health was like something I had to, to work on. And I, it's so important. Uh, I think it's underestimated, like, the importance of just taking time for yourself mm-hmm. to get your head straight. Emil. Balance being a perfectionist with delegating. What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're building your teams? 
kindness and working well with others and energy for the brand. What do you got, Joe? Yeah, typically like in an interview, for example, I'll ask what people do on their own time. And what I'm looking for is that passion. You know, it's not like, oh, I like to go see movies or whatever. It's like, man, I love doing this and this and this. Because they, if they have that passion for their own things, they'll bring that passion to the company. I love it. What is your biggest challenge today? <laughs> the DOB. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's definitely the, the, for me, it's navigating the bureaucracy of getting our thing up and running. Awesome. You want Build, to building a distillery in New York City. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. It's a way to be, a way to act. collaborate we can do so much more together than we can on our own so just just work with each other don't think you know everything bring people in yeah and these these questions are tailored more towards the restaurant you guys are doing a great job answering them this next one might be difficult but there's you're still serving people in what you do so what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team a way to go above and beyond what's expected from you i mean Maybe it's not above and beyond, but I kind of touched on it before that we don't sell, we educate. Yes, I was hoping you'd say that. That was what was at the forefront of my mind. Do you want to add on to that? Yeah, and to add on that, it's it's about the it's about the long run. Yeah. It's not about the the you know, do things that will benefit be mutual beneficial for the long run. And that has to do with educating and relationships and everything we've spoken about. I dig it. Uh what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a food and beverage operator. Wow. This might be a little bit on the outside, but in terms of you know figuring out what you want to what you want to stand for, I think different. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's got the two name is different. Different, and it's got two dogs on the front page. <laughs> <laughs> got you. Mm-hmm. What do you got for us? <laughs> yeah. Again, I go back to about kind of getting in the right frame of mind and for me the alchemist was like a really transformative book for me how did it transform you you know just again ability to look at the world in a very different uh set of lenses and for me it was more about getting out getting out of my own way of stressing out over every single little thing and really focusing on a loving myself you know kind of corny but you know how can you love anyone else or anything if you don't love yourself first Mm -hmm. and the alchemist uh, i think really helped me with that so what is one piece of a of technology you guys have adopted uh, that you're leveraging that maybe might be uh something that crosses over into like the restaurant industry too Mm -hmm. uh, and generally speaking is there anything you can think of slack yeah i was gonna say the same thing yeah Mm -hmm. i mean we're 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 on slack all the time with our team because we sit around the table on mondays but then everybody's out running and doing different things, and we communicate a lot on Slack. And it's not only work stuff, it's personal stuff, it's fun pictures. You can make infinite channels, yeah. and it keeps yeah. all the conversations flowing where they belong. So you can go and, and you can scan for keywords to find something that was discussed in the past. Uh, it keeps that close-up communication there. Everybody's yeah. on the same page. It's very powerful. And this is the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? <laughs> uh, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your rest Restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? I don't know if you guys want to do three each or tag team this question. Well, we can do three each. Yeah. Um, I guess it kind of goes back, you know, life is short. 
do you know focus on what you love that's one focus on what you love um one thing we talk a lot about is swim in your lane swim in your lane um and that's really about finding your path and staying on that staying on that path and not being scared to do it and also not chasing the business just because something else happens around you and lastly have fun beautiful what do you got for sml let's see so the first one is i probably use it daily you can do anything you want but you can't do everything you want that's one uh number two is goes back to what we said before don't be afraid to fail or be different or do something different two and the third one is i mean it's just the power of you know team and collaboration you can't do things like it's it's so much easier to accomplish things if you let other people in and if you work with other people. Awesome. I have loved this conversation. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. That's how I found you guys. Lauren Lynch, thank you for the connection. Uh, <laughs> who do you respect and admire and believe needs to be made an example of in the food and beverage world? Ralph. Ralph. Lorenzo? Yeah. Yeah. No, he's great. I, I think uh, someone to kind of keep it in the restaurant world um, – Naren Young and Lyndon Pride from Dante. All right. Look out, Lauren, and what was the? Lyndon Pride and Naren Young. All right. Look out, guys. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show and let the folks at home know, how can we connect with you if we want to maybe come join your team? Uh, if you guys are in a new space, I'm sure you're going to be hiring real soon. Oh, or yeah. maybe we want to purchase your products. We, we, have a, we have a big hiring plan. Yeah. <laughs> we, have a, we have a large empty space where we're going to build an awesome distillery for all the experiences and stuff that we want to do. We are going to have a large bar and we are going to serve food. So it's, we'll, we'll all, all of a sudden be restaurant operators too. So uh, add that to, <laughs> to, the, to the list. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, and I think to get a hold of us, you know, info at brooklyngen.com. You can DM us through Facebook and, and uh, Instagram. Uh, but, yeah. Well, I know a good podcast you guys can listen to to get ready for that restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll link to all the, the uh, tools, resources, books, uh, a summary of today's discussion, as well as how to connect with these gentlemen in the show notes. This is episode 500, or sorry, 633. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 633. You'll find all that there. And again, thank you guys so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. <laughs> right on cheers. cheers thank you thank you all right there we go another episode in the archive here at restaurant unstoppable i hope you all found value before i let you go i have to remind you please sign up for the restaurant unstoppable email list that is where you will never miss an episode and you get the behind the scenes of what's going on here where i'm at what's on my mind and what the future of restaurant unstoppable looks like and you can have an influence on that don't forget to connect on social media that's slash restaurant unstoppable on facebook and at eric cacciatore e-r-i-c C-A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E on Instagram. But the most important thing you can do to support this mission of inspiring, empowering, and transforming our industry is by sharing this sucker with anybody and everybody you know who's aspiring to be great in the industry. All right. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out. Peace out.